the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding. Welcome to podcast, Care of Cooper Cherry. Um, today's guest is Chris Raguz. Chris is a uh, a MUFO on the uh, on the bird site on Twitter and uh, so tell the Chris tell us who is the uh, who's your favorite poster on Twitter the young Lacanian <laughs> boy right here Cooper chair <laughs> so again uh, just a lot of people bitch about Twitter but I think it's it's been great it's been a lot of uh, I made a lot of connections I mean how I wouldn't have known you otherwise you know yeah there's some cool people on Twitter you know yeah for sure um, so the reason it I can brought- be brutal though. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, I kind of stay out of the discourse and just focus on being absurd and, and making jokes. Yeah, definitely the best mistake. But uh, the reason I brought Chris on today is Chris uh, has a is a fellow Baudrillard head. And uh, so you wrote your, like, undergrad thesis on Baudrillard? Yeah, I wrote my undergrad on Baudrillard and Thomas Pynchon. Um, and I'm doing grad work on Baudrillard as well, but... He's by far, I think, the most salient thinker of this time period, for sure. He's also just the absolute boy. <laughs> definitely hardcore Joker energy coming from our, our boy JB. But so you're yeah. now now you're at U of, U of Chicago, and you're doing yeah. like it's a like a one year grad program. Yeah, I'm doing my masters. Masters, um, okay. Yeah, masters in English. Um, yeah, English and social thought. And Baudrillard is also going to continue to be a big focus of of that work as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. A slightly different orientation. You know, we can get to where my undergrad thesis and my graduate work sort of splinter, but uh, it's still just sort of pretty much seeped in Baudrillard. Nice. So actually, maybe that'd be a good place to start is like, where, where did you first kind of encounter Baudrillard's ideas and... Um, and maybe even just lar- more largely, like maybe some post-structuralist thought, like what was kind of your in to that world? Yeah, that's a good question. So Baudrillard is interesting and um, in that he's he's part of this French philosopher movement that, you know, if you're if you're somebody who reads theory, you definitely know these people, right? Like, you know, the post-structuralists, you know, you know, Deleuze, you know, Foucault, you know, all these people. They were writing, you know, 1960s, 1970s, and Baudrillard definitely came out of that. But um, Baudrillard himself actually got his PhD in, I think, literature. Um, and he kind of started off as a literary critic before shifting into this more social theory stuff, um, which he's known for, right? Um, and his main writings, you know, you get a System of Objects in the 70s. But then most of the work is actually 80s, 90s. And he wrote his last book, I think 2004. He died, you know, in the mid-aughts. So I started reading Baudrillard because he's sort of famous for Simulation and Simulacrum, you know, the the 1980s book. Uh, And he's sort of famous for that because the Wachowski sisters, 
um, when they were Wachowski brothers, made the movie The Matrix, and they credited Baudrillard saying, oh, this is a movie about Baudrillard's philosophy, and Baudrillard, in typical Baudrillard fashion, said, this has nothing to do with my philosophy. You know, sort of a, a, a put down on popular culture, but still, it's, it's kind of true. Um, the Matrix sort of took the idea of simulation and simulacra literally, right? and sort of made this movie, made this movie about, like, you know, exploitation within a simulation, which, you know, in it's sort of, like, tangentially related to yeah. Baudrillard's thought. It's, like, kind of like a very literal interpretation of his work. But that's sort of, like, you know, the moment in popular culture where the simulation comes to the forefront, right, for popular culture. And everybody's sort of interested in it. I, for one, picked up Baudrillard because of simulation and simulacra. And as soon as you start reading Baudrillard, I think you find that he is just sort of a breath of fresh air if you're reading theory, right? Like, he writes in a way that's humorous, in a way that's, like, overly pessimistic, yet not normative, in that he doesn't think things are bad, you know? He sort of just points out these inevitabilities that are sort of cynical, you know, because we're living in a very cynical time, which he entirely predicted, you know? He's sort of associated with postmodernity in a way that not a lot of thinkers are. You know, there's people who define postmodernity, you know, maybe you get Frederick Jameson, you get the postmodern condition by Loyotard, you know, trying to chart what postmodernity is. But Baudrillard's entire philosophy is steeped in understanding postmodernity as sort of this material entity, this new absolute coming out of history in a way that sort of the theories of what postmodernity is don't really line up, right? So you got Frederick Jameson who says postmodernity is, you know, the movement between time and space, right? Like we're entering a time where spatial entities are sort of valued above what used to be temporal, you know, and that in the 19th, 20th centuries, you have this sort of slow unwinding of history where you have agents, you know, you have people who are influencing history, but you have a collapse of that in a way that Loyotard points out in Postmodern Condition, where he says it's the collapse of meta-narratives, which again is just sort of like an abstract philosophical way of trying to point to a change in history, right? It's saying like, oh, there's no way to structure the self, there's no way to structure a social identity in the long run, because that's all collapsing. The meta-narratives are collapsing, so on and so forth. Yeah, but Baudrillard... Like, kind of like the... Yeah, uh, yeah, go ahead. It's almost like the Stern, Sterner concept of like the spooks or the guys through... I forget what the actual German word is, but uh, you know what I mean? Those kind of stories are finally, those spooks are kind of like evaporating slowly as we're progressing yeah. into post-modernity further and further. Yeah. And, I, you know, and I appreciate those thinkers, you know, and I think they have like very valid thoughts about what post-modernity is. But Baudrillard is one of the only thinkers who writes about the technology of today, yeah. you know, who's writing about the image, who's writing beyond when television took over you know, and it's sort of the precursor to internet culture in a huge way, right? So I think Baudrillard is predicting sort of the rise of postmodernity as this sort of force that tears us from these old antiquated notions of the self, the real, all of these things that we thought were inalienable, you know, maybe 50 years ago are completely alienated from us now, you know? And he talks about it in a way that uses the actual technology that's changing us in 
talks about it in a way that shows how it materially changes how we interact with the world, how we interact with one another, and how we view ourselves, you know, which a lot of philosophers don't do. You know, they kind of think they're above the pop culture, right. the pop technology sort of, of the game. age. They're sort yeah. of, yeah, they're like writing for some sort of like historical dead people that they at some point want to be a part of. Whereas Baudrillard was writing almost exclusively about this sort of like low culture stuff, right? He was like writing about Ronald Reagan and his smile, you know? He's writing about the beginning of reality television in the 80s. Um, he writes about these things as if they're objects of art, as if they're sort of objects of inquiry that traditional philosophy, even continental philosophy for all of its sort of radical posturing, doesn't actually take into account most of the time. So I see Baudrillard as sort of the most down-to-earth philosopher, you know, and the one who sees clearest where we're heading. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think to me, he's like the, I think I even mentioned this kind of when we talked earlier this week about like kind of waking up in the middle of the night um, after like Donald Trump was elected president and just being like saying one word, Baudrillard, you know, in this very kind of yeah. cinematic moment. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, that's like immediately I was like, holy shit, this is he. I just that was like the crystallized idea in my head at that moment was holy shit. He was right. Yeah, that's a great point. Like Baudrillard would have had an absolute orgy over Donald Trump. I mean, he really predicted Donald Trump. And he sort of did this way before Donald Trump. Um, and he writes a lot in, in two separate books, he writes about this, where he sort of saw Ronald Reagan as the beginning of the Donald Trump era. Because yeah. he saw Ronald Reagan as sort of this perfect image of politics, this smile that transcended reality into hyper-reality. The smile that, you know, behind it, you know, who's who's actually running Ronald Reagan's political regime? It's like Arthur Laffer, you know, like supply-side economics. And then you have Ronald Reagan who, you know, like we can all sort of understand as sort of just like this stand-in figure, you know, this like actor who was just there to literally present a simulation of like what the country thought was like a cool American like person to hide the sort of operational logic of a larger sort of neoliberal regime. And with Donald Trump, he would have seen the absurdity of that, you know, multiplied to the highest nth yeah. level, you know? It's like Donald the past, Trump is sort of, yeah, he's yeah. the he's the pastiche of, uh, of a, a pastiche Ra Reagan. Yeah, I mean, he says, he's like, you know, I am like Reagan. And in a certain way he is. And yeah, he, definitely. He, he doesn't have any real experience other than just being an image. You know, but he's so damn good at being an image. I mean, know? that's what his, would have that's his whole, it. yeah, I mean, that's his whole, his entire business model is the, you know, like the Trump tower, like the Trump name is his product, right? Or the, you know what I mean? Right. That image, it, it's purely like, it's really a callback to, to sort of like early 20th century or 19th, like 19th century hucksters in America. You know what I mean? He's like the ultimate digital snake oil salesman yeah absolutely um yeah and and a lot of like the logistics around his campaign the sort of cambridge analytica complete you know ob objectification of your data in order to use it to sway voters i think baudrillard i mean baudrillard sort of predicted this these like i said before like 
these rights that we thought or these things about ourselves that we thought were inalienable, like just like the, you know, auxiliary information we leave in the world was used basically to target like 80,000 voters, you know, in three key swing states by this company who was just masters of, you know, using our own information as assets, you know, sort of commodifying our own information, you know, yeah. in order to win an election, which I think Baudrillard sort of predicted the rise of this new sort of like information manipulation political system that we see on the horizon, you know, with like, you know, Cambridge Analytica, the leave.eu campaign, and Donald Trump sort of like mastering the age of information manipulation um, in a way that sort of the left started with Obama in 2008, you know, like one of the people who actually started Cambridge Analytica was uh, Barack Obama's social media intern, Brittany Kaiser. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so it's, it's sort of like, <laughs> and Bochard would love this sort of like apolitical shift, you know, that the people who create these things are not, like, they don't have political morals. Like, Brittany Kaiser was this sort of like human rights activist that all of a sudden is working on Ted Cruz's campaign, you know, oh. working on Donald Trump's campaign, working on leave.eu, like within a four-year span. Yeah. Um, so I think Baudrillard would really appreciate the sort of cynicism of the tech world and the sort of posturing, the simulation of liberal politics while sort of acting as the society of control that, you know, Toulouse wrote about. For sure. I think even maybe like taking that further, even beyond that is just, I mean, that same logic really applies to like the entirety of, you know, Facebook's business model, Google, Twitter, you know, whom, how, whichever company it is in that social media space like that's that's another aspect of this kind of hyper real whatever the fuck's going on like capital it entering into ah just i don't even know how to the capital even infiltrating that and like getting the users to become the product i mean that's just right the fucking yeah, twisted like, logic of capital like baudrillard i mean that's kind of what baudrillard is really about ultimate like in a large sense is just kind of understanding like just the fucked up twisted logic of capital and how it will distort things. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's sort of like absurd in that it's sort of the wet dream of surplus value to be monetizing our information without us having like any, you know, gains to be made, right? Like in the industrial revolution, at least we had exploitation where we knew that we were working a certain amount and just not being paid enough, you know, like just having surplus value extracted from what we should get paid, but who's getting paid for their data? You know what I mean? This is a whole economy based on the fact that we literally just voluntarily and not really voluntarily, they love to say voluntarily, but we're just using our data in sort of the hyper real world of human interaction these days, which is social media. And through that, they can just completely extract this, this extra layer of value, which is just sort of data, you know, this like abstract notion of data, which is like, what do you Google? Like, who are you psychologically, you know, which is then used for hyper targeted ads or hyper targeted political campaigns that are meant to sway people who just their only sin was logging on to something that was inevitable, which is sort of like the complete disappearance of the social while the social becomes virtual. Damn. <laughs> Hell yeah, that's... 
a great way to yeah damn that's brilliant that's a good analysis i like it but yeah that's that's really tracking on what's yeah Which I think yeah, Baudrillard I mean, snapped onto. I mean, it's amazing how he kind of foresaw saw this future. Yeah, and I think that's the whole point of Baudrillard, at least for myself, is that he was tracking the postmodern trajectory in a way that, you know, people in his era saw him as sort of like the king of hot takes. You know, <laughs> yeah. like if you oh, read yeah. Baudrillard, if you read Baudrillard, he's like, his... His form is very aphoristic. It, it sort of like mirrors the gay science or like any Nietzsche writing in the way that it, it sort of like has a ton of aphorisms that all work together in sort of a system of thought, yet they sort of are read separately. It's actually very enjoyable to read. And I, I think that's why it's like very easy sometimes to read Nietzsche or Baudrillard because it's enjoyable to a certain extent. It's not this sort of like long system building theory. But somehow his, his theory sort of emerges as holistic, but he writes in a way that's like one paragraph at a time. And his takes are not really built on grounds. They're just sort of like claims, right? Like he's just like, it's the death of the real, the death of the individual. And he'll give reasons why, but it's not like, you know, as somebody who works in, you know, analytical writing and graduate work, like, no Baudrillard essay would be graded well by a professor. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, right. it's just not, it's not how you normally write, but the way he writes aphoristically is very appealing. Um, and I think it's sort of part of this sort of breakdown of totalities of, of totalizing systems um, generally is he doesn't try to create like a totalizing thought it's just that in his sort of decentered thinking, you do tend to see um, one big trajectory of history. I think it's interesting that you hear kind of, you know, people like Jordan Peterson, for example, kind of take it like they talk shit about postmodernism. And they're always kind of pointing to Foucault and Derrida in particular. But I think really Baudrillard is kind of the one that is like the like would be make the most sense to attack i think because he definitely yeah. takes that whole kind of like i mean his theory is not it's not hard like rigorously you know it's not rigorous analytical philosophy right it's right. it's very broad and but it's right i mean that's i don't know like i said he just has a great understanding for how capital how fucking twisted and the like trajectory of it and damn, be, just being able to spot that 20, 30 years in the in the past is right. insane. Yeah, it's important. Um, it's it's strange though. He he sort of started when he wrote System of Objects in the seventies. He was still working under like a Marxist tradition, right? You know, he was still talking about um, sort of this bastardization of exchange value, this sort of system of objects that has moved not just from use value to exchange value, as Marx said but to sort of like a whole society of images where the image is more important than the actual commodity itself, you know, which is important for his later work, but he was still working under a political Marxism at the time. And I think his later work is borderline apolitical and that he's not attaching many normative judgments to this, right? He's not saying like, oh, this is bad. Like everything's going to shit. 
you know, sort of in the way if you read Adorno, he like thought the world was ending in 1955, which I, you know, you can't blame him, you know, as like a Jew fleeing the Holocaust. It pretty much the world was ending. Um, but the absolute despair in reading something like Minimum Moralia versus reading Baudrillard is quite striking. You know, there's almost a break there that I identify and I sort of call it like a post-cynical philosophy, right? Like there's a cynicism to it, but at the end of the day, Baudrillard's trying to equip you with the tools to deal with the postmodern condition that is inevitably always going to be there, right? It's not something that we're supposed to prevent. It's just how things are unraveling, you know? Like we can't go back is one of his big points. You know, when he talks about historically how we've crossed what he calls the dead point, it's this point of non-reversibility, right? You can never go back past when we invented, say, like, the internet, you know? You can't undo that. The world has changed forever materially, Yeah. right? Absolutely. But yeah. history itself, we have to prepare for this history that um, is sort of just exalting in its own non-contradiction, right? History is so contradictory, yet nobody seems to care. And there seems to be this sort of like almost like meta awareness of history that is sort of in on its own joke, right? Like when we see something so absurd today, you know, like Donald Trump just pulling troops out of Turkey, you know, that used to be like a real thing that we felt like was an aberration in sort of foreign policy. But these days in this point of no return, it's, it sort of just feels like this is the absurdity that history is sort of like aware it's producing, right? Like, no matter what happens, we sort of just laugh at it first because it's so absurd what's happening. You know, the decisions being made, the things that sort of the events that occur past the dead point are, are sort of things that just are produced almost as a joke, but as a joke of history saying, like, this is where we are now. You know, like this is this is the next century, really, or however long we can bear it is sort of this scene of absurdity where the events are not going to line up in any logical order. The events just sort of occur without logic, but there's an underlying logic of sort of the systems that protect capital, the systems that allow capital to thrive um, can just sort of like become so absurd that you sort of think that there's no way that we can deal with it right you know and at least Baudrillard is trying to understand the absurdity in a way that maybe you know 20 years from now or even today you know I mean he was writing for 30 years in the future we can prepare ourselves for the material conditions that will be there you know because they change so fast maybe we can launch some sort of political paradigm for the world we live in rather than some sort of you know, anachronistic political philosophy. You know, it sort of goes against, like, the traditional Marxist salvation politics, you know. Yeah, um, just to interject with a little, like, some some Jeopardy facts here, or, like, some per trivial pursuit, <laughs> um, something interesting is that uh, um, the book System of Objects, which is essentially Baudrillard's thesis, his dissertation com committee was Henri Lefebvre, Roland Barthes, and Pierre Bourdieu. Can you imagine? Yeah, absolutely. That's fucking... <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, imagine writing for those yeah, people. Yeah, like standing up and having to defend your shit in front of those those guys. Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's 
Yeah, that would be insane. And I feel like if you went to school any time in France during True. the 1960s through right. 1980s, but it's like, it's like even having people having just one of those guys on your committee is yeah. bad enough. <laughs> but to have all three at once—that's insane. Yeah, that's a tough thesis to pass. Um, it also speaks, though, to um, in a lot of ways, there's a sort of return to structuralism in Baudrillard's work, right? Like. He, he sort of agrees with, and System of Objects is very much built on de Saussure's theory of language as completely synchronic. Synchronic meaning language can only be understood within its sort of like present relation to other words, right? And then diachronic being before that, being like, you have to look at a word historically, you know? Like, take a word liberty. A synchronic understanding of it would only understand liberty according to how it could be presently defined under the system, the language system that we're currently under, which is sort of the structuralist way to think about it. Diachronic being like, oh no, you would have to go back to, you know, 17th century political philosophy to talk about what liberty is. Um, in a lot of ways, post-structuralism wants to merge the synchronic and the diachronic. And I see in Baudrillard sort of almost more of a synchronic understanding. You know, in, in, in System of Objects, the commodities themselves are synchronically understood, right? Like, the commodities are valued as much as their image is worth within their sort of present system of exchange value. Um, and you, you sort of see a structuralism early in Baudrillard um, that later, I don't think turns into a structuralism, but it turns into an understanding of commodity systems as highly synchronic, as sort of like, um, I, th I think we can think today like the influencers and the Instagram, right? Like people who are famous nowadays are famous very synchronically, right? It's like 15 day periods sometimes of like when you're very famous and then when you're not, you know? Like the, the aphorism of like 15 minutes of fame, um, is very much true for like how commodities work in our current age of like high level, hyper real spectacle. You know, commodities are as valuable as they are in the synchronic understanding of them. Yeah, you know, in the greater system of objects. And I'm thinking where I see this kind of played out um, really kind of clearly and, and kind of brilliantly, honestly, is I don't know if you are you familiar with the brand Off White by Virgil Abloh? Yeah, yeah which uh, has actually inspired, like, kind of that's the the podcast actual logo is definitely drawing on that kind of idea. So for the people that don't know on, on the podcast, uh, so this brand Off-White is known for basically listing what the object is, like, in block, like Helvetica, just sans serif font, in quotations, like, it'll be wallet or boots or something similar and yeah so it's kind of playing with that with that too like that's definitely a great example of how this sort of system of objects works and that sort of only makes sense like once you get to this stage of capital for that to be like a des like a desirable commodity for you to consume right yeah it's like exactly. you're consuming an object that is like openly it's like it's winking and nodding this whole meta understanding between consumer and and commodity by the commodity it's, itself is just like labeling oh just like a pair of boots or a wallet yeah but 
there you know what I mean there, there's like that symbolic value no, but the absolutely it's like a that's what's the word like um it's it's not f- they're like there's a humor maybe not a, a humor is maybe not the quite the best descriptor it's more of like ah I don't know there's an irony to it I guess maybe it's there's an irony about it like yeah it is it's, it's an irony it's an irony that's successful you know like uh i think that's a great point because uh like it's kind of i mean it's I, it's like recognizing its own it's like breaking the fourth wall of capital of like oh i know this object is just like i'm just gonna sell you nothing, i'm yeah. gonna sell you this idea and i'm like very consciously yeah. making you aware that i am and we're both like in on the system of consumption right like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, uh, that's so. I think that's a great point, and it like points to like you know the more well known I guess is like Supreme. Oh you yeah. You know, like if you just put the name Supreme on, I think they sold a brick the other year for like hundreds of dollars. You know, like the the idea that literally the signifier attached to what the commodity is could completely usurp the use value is absolutely insane. But it makes complete sense within the synchronic system exactly, yeah, exactly. exchange value today, right? And uh, Baudrillard, his last book, The Conspiracy of Art, sort of speaks towards this. Maybe, you know, I, I think it's worth applying to like a, a company like Supreme, but he has this great quote in The Conspiracy of Art where he says that um, modern art is insider trading on its own nothingness. Ooh. The whole point is that nobody... <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> man. Wow, what a quote. It's, it's very... It's great. And he sort of went to New York on his last tour and is just telling all of these conceptual artists that they are basically just duping people, which is true, yeah, right? Like, absolutely. Art, art understands that it's worthless, right? Yet it can trade on just like art deciding that it's important. You know, just like Supreme creating a brand that decides it's important, you can sell things for a hundred times what they're worth at Goodwill, you know, as a business model. Like, how does that make any sense under like a traditional Marxist yeah. use value system? Right, like, or there's even no, though- There's no extra use value for those boots. Or the, you know? the labor- It's just that they- The labor theory to right. value, like that totally breaks down whenever you have like, although I will say- you know, whenever you buy a piece from Off-White or something, like if you did buy a, a wallet, like it's going to be quality leather, but like you're definitely paying a lot more for that surplus. Like the surplus value is in the different, like, you know what I mean? Like it, there's that symbolic element is what, where right. all the profit is. Yeah, which is amazing because, you know, Baudrillard wrote that System of Objects book in the 70s and he's like, this is the business model of like hype beast yeah. fashion these days, you know? But then again, just like how does your, yeah. then again though, like that's even, it's almost a even faster or like exponential exploitation of labor value. Like it's extracting, but like it's an exploitation, but it's not extracting all of the value. But like, you know what I mean? Like you're deriving so much profit off of this labor producing this garment or whatever the case may be. So yeah, there's that, right. but like you're also sur- slurping up surplus value or like this, yeah, this some type of surplus just from the synchronic relationship as well. Right, just from the image. You're, yeah, you're abstracting that like synchronic relationship. Yeah. 
Absolutely. It's like how the image is perceived within sort of the fashion moment is sort of like the best business model these days. Yeah. Yeah. And being able to, you know, obviously like there's business models where it's just, you know, things like fast fashion as well, like H and M, et cetera. You know, there's a handful of those types of stores that are known just to be like these dis like the anti- the expectation is that this thing will fall apart in a year, but there's going to be this moment where it does work and it's trendy, but there's this kind of like throwaway aspect of, yeah. of clothing too. That's really fucked up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's very strange, you know, and it, it's absurd to me, um, growing up in this era, but it, it's just, it's pretty incredible that that absurdity is sort of like predicted, which is sort of like the, um, the salience of Baudrillard and reading Baudrillard is he sort of predicted how you feel in this moment, this moment of, of postmodernity where things just do not make sense whatsoever. You know, like nothing really seems to make sense on any logical level um, as it's all just sort of entering more and more into this period of postmodernity that I think specifically just Baudrillard predicted more than anyone else. It's more than the collapse of meta narratives. It's more than like the theoretical movement of time to space. It's like in our daily lives, Baudrillard predicted the sort of like day to day absurdity of it. And the overabundance of information. And we, I kind of started to formulate this a little bit earlier when you're just talking about that kind of relationship. You were more so talking about Cambridge Analytica and history and how history flows now within the era of social media and Twitter. And it's like, I think there's a different material reality between a world where we're relying on, you know, telegraph communication between, you know, between like continents or whatever. And uh, print newspapers on like a daily, like rotating basis, like that material world versus the world where I go on Twitter and I can, there's, I'm, there's more information than I can possibly even consume ever all the time, right? Yeah. And being able to have a constant second-by-second second distraction from, like, you can dive into the fantasy of consuming every single second through social right. media. Like, every single, yeah. like, you can have an entire life that is devoted to like consuming at all times whenever you have something like a smartphone and things like twitter instagram like you're oh you're just like (laughs) it's like moths to a flame you know what i mean yeah absolutely and that's sort of like how bojiard predicts the death of the social like you're not talking to somebody face to face as much as you are being mediated by screens by technology by social media the mediation happens through so many levels of abstraction that the social is not what it used to be. It's not like you go, you know, wherever you go and you talk to somebody, you know, there's no more like social hangouts as much as there is sort of like social media group chats, like social media, who you follow, like what your simulated world, what you want it to be is your world. Yeah. You know, you're, sociality is completely determined by your own decisions 
which completely undermines what was real social interaction, you know, even like 50 years ago. Um, so what we're dealing with is literally the transition from having a socius to having no socius, from having a self that you understood to be yourself to having yourself completely dissipated in the same exact way that you know, Cambridge Analytica owns your data and probably knows more about you than you do, you know, when it comes to your psychological profile, you know, when it comes to your commodification, they're more knowledgeable about what could be sold to you than you are, you know, yourself is completely sort of reduced to what you think you are, which is just sort of like what makes you build this simulation. Or you can delve into what is like what is a self now because there's you can create so many different images and like which one is the quote unquote you know which one is the real in quotation marks you like is it the person that you're interacting with now via mm -hmm. like this uh, google chat that we're in or is it the one right. that we're dming on twitter or like you're looking at posts on twitter like my whatever persona there right so I have that one right. and then I have one for the podcast and then I have an Instagram and then I have a Facebook and then I have like the actual, I guess, meat space me, but like which one of those is, is more authentic than any of the others. Like there's a multiplicity. So that's even the division and the like, uh, God, I'm trying to, uh, oh, yeah, that's, like the, that's great though. The budding, it's almost like you're a mycelia, you're a, fucking body without organs you know what i mean yeah no very very true though because like the meat space you is almost worthless you know what i mean when it comes to the syncretic um sort of economic system right like what's worth money is the data you produce you know what i mean it's your virtual self which is why you know it's incur inherently encouraged that you get more and more online it's like inherently better for the economic system if you Google more things, if you buy more things, if we can have more information on who you are, that's what's worth money. You know, it's not worth like if a marketing exec came and talked to you, it would be like not worth his time compared to just looking at everything you Google searched, looking at everything you've ever bought and then trying to determine what you will buy in the future. You know what I mean? Because even you don't know that. Even I don't know that, you know. Yeah. But you can develop certain operational logic to how things will sell in this time period in the future, which is part of this like condition of postmodernity is there's, there's really a, a limitation of possibility going forward. There's only so many outcomes that can happen. You know, there's, there's really a lot of things that are materially limiting us to a certain trajectory of where society goes, specifically technology. You know, technology completely changes how we interact, how we view ourselves, how we buy things. That That's more important than any philosophical change within the meat space, you know? Hmm. Interesting. You know what I just actually had a thought about is, I don't know, what, I mean, this is kind of hard to, I think, nail down because maybe there is like a lingering legacy of this uh, behavior or like this cohort of people that consider themselves to be incels 
and I wonder if like the pro the how easy it is to consume images of sex like I want it feels like there's a relationship there too in terms of maybe the psychoanalytic perspective but that kind of plays into like this commodification as well in the pursuit of like this image like we're being fed these images that are simulated that don't really have a base in reality and specifically like in the case of pornography where you know what I mean like obviously like you have the you know what I mean like the ch- it's kind of like the chad the idealized yeah. kind of primal figure that makes you seem inadequate in in kind of in contrast and that's a lot more readily available and so i don't know like i wonder what that relationship is but i feel like that's something that baudrillard would have there's probably something in his work that like is an analog to that idea as well absolutely and when he talks about sort of the death of the social he talks about how everything about your self-relation to the social can be substituted by technology i think the main one is your sort of uh, your sexuality right like your sexuality can be completely simulated it used to be that you if you wanted to have sex like you know it depended on who you were of course but you sort of just like waited for a long period of time you know but today like the the idea is that you can be like constantly fed simulations of sex, right? To the point where you like, one, are materially influenced that that's how you view sex, you know? Like I think sexuality has been sort of like influenced majorly by pornography. You know, there's like a trade-off relationship between people who view pornography and how they engage in sex. But also with this whole incel movement, like the idea that there's just like, you know, millions upon millions of videos of pornography out there makes them feel like they are sort of like an aberration when it comes to sexuality. Right. You know what I mean? When in, in the past that wasn't the case yeah. at all, you know? And I, I think if you like even look it up today, like the average person will say that they're like entire lifetime, they have like four to six sexual partners, you know? it's But pornography and sort of like the commodification of sex as sort of like a, oh buy this thing you know there's you'll get sex from it basically you know yeah. like the sort of selling through sex of commodities has made it to the point where like the incel movement has sort of like this strange expectation of sex like they're owed it by like it's you know, any women. other transaction i i have this money i will buy like it's almost right. it's like the taking of that logic of cons- of like the market exchange to and applying it like it's extended to every single social interaction. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's like a weird expectation on the part of the incel movement of like, well, I deserve sex, you know, because of, you know, if you read like the like Elliot Rogers, like his whole point was like I'm very rich, I should be getting a lot of sex, you know. Elliot Rogers being the person who like shot up what you see Santa Barbara yeah. killed like seven people just because he couldn't get laid, you know, like that's literally the entire point of what he was doing, which is like a complete hyperbolic version of like sexual insecurity of the past, but only because in the spectacle, sexual insecurity is like specifically 
thought to not even exist anymore because we're selling everything on sex. You know, the assumption is that you're having sex all the time because apparently you're buying these things to have sex. Like, yeah, it's, it's just, it's pretty, it's pretty scary to have like the incel movement now because, because of their like built in assumptions that postmodernity has brought on them because people who historically have it harder you know just by like the exchange value of attractiveness or the you know technological situation we're in it's like supposed to be like oh it's easier than ever to have sex you know what i mean like everything is supposed to be a lot easier now there's dating apps there's pornography like how could you possibly feel inadequate sexually and yet clearly it makes that same sexual insecurity far more hyperbolic than it's ever been because it's constantly sort of like shoved in your face as something that you don't have. But the the actual social dynamics of sex have gone down. People aren't having sex as much anymore. You can read any study that says that like if you were living in 1960 or 1950, you were probably having more sex than we are now. You know what I mean? Sexuality has gone down because the simulation of sex has become so, you know, a part of our daily life. You know what I mean? It's become just like another thing to add to your daily routine. It's like, oh yeah, I'll just simulate sex later. You know what I mean? But in the process, the sort of like degradation of sex has not been seen as something that's like, I don't know how to explain this. Like, the incel is sort of like stuck in this moment where sex is supposed to be at its peak when it's really at a at its major media, downturn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's very strange. And this is not to say that incels are correct. They're like very much delusional. But at least in the Baudrillardian sense, he would have predicted that a simulation of sex would lead to such a demographic of people who think that because they're not getting sex, they're not part of the norm, which... They really are. Like, if you're not getting laid, most of us are not getting laid, you know? Like, that's the normal thing. But to them, it seems like this major, you know, like, they're being robbed of something yeah. that everybody else is getting. It, there's, a, there's, like, a commodity fetish aspect of it, too, I think. Yeah. It has been commodified in that way, too. You know, like, sex is probably the most commodifiable thing. Like... It's, it, it probably sells the best. You know, that's why advertisers for half a century have been using it as their, like, primary way of selling things. But also, like, if you go on Twitter today, there's, like, tons of people who just, like, sell nudes, you know? That's, like, the thing they do to make, like, 150 grand a year, you know? Like, there's a reason it's so economically viable as a thing to sell. But there's also a reason why that upturn in exchange value of sex leads to sort of a feeling that you're out of the loop if if you're not actually getting sex in the real. Hmm. So what else in terms of Baudrillard? You kind of talked a little bit about system of objects, and then we kind of went over some examples of, I think, broadly how that works, and maybe even kind of dipped a little bit. Have you read... Uh, what is it? Symbolic exchange and death, or is that the one you haven't read? 
I haven't I read Symbolic that. Exchange and Death. I also haven't read uh, the one you were picking up, the like Spirit of yeah. Terrorism. I mean, I know terrorism plays a big role in Baudrillard's work, actually. It's kind of odd. Um, he's also famous for these sort of hot takes. <laughs> he sort of wrote in um, during the sort of Desert Storm War... Um, he was he was keen to pick up on that war nowadays is all about the simulation of war, right? Like I think this goes back to Vietnam, the first TV war, where you have something like the Tet Offensive, which was successful in its simulation on television, right? Like everybody in America was like, "Oh my God, we're losing this war," but the Tet Offensive in reality was sort of a last ditch effort by the Viet Cong, right? Like it's like something that they sort of map had this massive offensive that lost thousands of lives that they probably wouldn't have been able to recover from in a normal battlefield. But on television, it played like the U.S. has no idea what they're doing, the U.S. is losing, and we got out, right? I think that's sort of Baudrillard understands as the first television war. But in the early 1990s, the idea of Desert Storm is sort of like, you know, we'll just play all of this on TV and it'll play well to Americans, right? Like, we won that war so decisively and you know and it played so well politically that it was a very much tv war and baudrillard at the time basically said yes so a, a french publication came to him and they said do you want to cover desert storm do you want to cover the sort of invasion of kuwait right and he says yes i absolutely will but i get to watch it on cnn i'm not going to go there i'm just going to watch it on tv and he covered this entire thing from tv and his writing is very eloquent in a way that it sort of says, like, this is a war particularly used or fought in images. You know, who's the winner of the perception of the war, right? Like, that's, that's sort of like what warfare is now, you know? And I think you see that going forward is, like, Americans have, a, like, a very low tolerance for body counts when it comes to wars in the future, right? Like, you... The U.S. is probably the strongest, easily the strongest military force in the world. And we, we could probably win any war that we actually wanted to win. But warfare has turned more into the simulation of war than it is the actual reality of the battlefield. You know, like, of course, the Iraqi army is outmatched. Of course, like, Iraqi insurgents during the 2004 Iraq War are completely outmatched. But if they can cause even like a few thousand casualties of american soldiers the television is bad we don't want to hear about people dying in iraq or videos of u.s soldiers dying in iraq that'll cause us to pull out it doesn't matter that you know a hundred thousand iraqis were killed you know or like any any real metric of warfare doesn't really matter so much as the television presentation of it and i think what Bojard really predicts is the U.S. is obviously very sensitive to these things, but I think the people who use it best are the Russians, you know, specifically with their, like, warfare in Syria and Georgia. Uh, Vladimir Putin is very keen on this Borgiardian sense of, we just need a war that it looks like we're winning, right? So they just televise on Russian TV all day that we're, like, bombing the shit out of, you know, ISIS or, you know, the Georgians. And it looks like they're winning all the time, and it raises Vladimir Putin's, you know, perceived likability amongst the Russian people. And he's consistently used that as a way to bolster 
his public support just by televising these sort of like in in reality like very small acts of warfare right like very small intervention into Syria and like Georgia he like always pulls back within a reasonable amount of time but the televised sort of image of warfare is important very like probably the most important thing to Vladimir Putin's public support in Russia um, so Baudrillard predicts that warfare has moved on to the image of warfare. There's never going to be a war again that's really fought like, I don't know, World War II. We can never, we can never lose a million people in a war, you know? Like the 20th century is never going to happen again um, in terms of warfare. But Baudrillard is also very skeptical of warfare generally because of mutually assured destruction. He thinks that like because every country is now in the same sort of economic consensus, you know, that there's really not going to be a war again because the nuclear weapons sort of like specter over the entire world is going to cause everybody to just kind of join the exact same economic consensus. And you can see that like even with Russia, with like the end of the 1980s and Petrostroika and sort of like the liberal reformation of Russia into a country that's supposedly capitalist. And like that, that was our biggest rival. That was the only supposedly non-capitalist country that was like our biggest rival, completely capitulated to the economic system. And now we have like international bodies that make sure that this system is completely connecting the entire world to the same system of exchange. So Baudrillard saw mutually assured destruction as sort of like the end of dialectics in a lot of way. Like there's no other. It's just this one system. It's one system of commodification that takes, you know, the forefront of everything. There's no more like, oh, there's a dialectic between liberalism and communism. That's not even true. Like Francis Fukuyama was more correct in saying that it's the end of history. It's just that I don't think he quite understood what the end of history was. The end of history, sure, is like, you know, the complete acceptance of liberal democracy is like the be-all, end-all of the historical process. But, you know, what does that mean? What does it mean to have everything under the same exact regime of economic and political dependency? Yeah. I mean, I don't know... I'm not, I did realize, I think there's the visions of the end of history for Baudrillard and, and uh, Fukuyama are definitely divergent. I don't know if I buy that so much because I think there is, I see a lot more like fragmentation um, in terms of where it lies, but maybe the, the climate change issue, I think, is one where Baudrillard just wasn't like the time that he was working wasn't as like the times weren't as dire and as far as what the future looks like from a from an environmental perspective you know what i mean and i think i i see that as the most you know ex- existential threat facing civilization <laughs> i think and it, that's really you know that's a whole another ball game in terms of ha- what happens after that moment, maybe like climate yeah. collapse is the end of history in a sense, you know? Yeah. 
Well, it's, it's interesting because Baudrillard would call this like, he thinks that every so often there needs to be an injection of the real, like an injection of what's actually going on into the simulation so that we can like react to it. I think climate change is like the ultimate real, right? Like it doesn't matter what we do, this is going to happen. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter how we frame it. It doesn't matter how we frame what the decimation of climate change is going to be. It's going to happen, right? Like the, the rise of sea levels is pretty much going to happen at this point. And Baudrillard, I don't think predicted climate change. I think he sort of died prior to sort of like the rise of climate change as a major sort of like situation, political situation in the world. Um, but there's an interesting political moment right now where Baudrillard would say often the real is injected as sort of like an authoritarian way of getting out of it, right? Like the real is injected as like, oh, there's climate change. And then they get people to say, oh, okay, okay, okay. Like there is climate change, but we want so much economic growth that like we should, you know, kind of avoid climate change as a major political necessity. But the injection of the real can also be like a political moment for the left, where it's sort of a moment where you can't deny the reality of the situation, right? Like you can't deny that climate change is going to eviscerate the entire economic situation at play here. Like GDP growth is probably going to drop like 20 to 30% as soon as the sea levels start rising. You're going to lose major cities. You're going to lose major markets. Like it's a huge problem for capitalism itself and capitalism doesn't really have a way to deal with it right now. So there's an opportunity here that I think Baudrillard sees in the injection of the real in sort of like reality seeping through the simulation of politics, the simulation of yeah, I like that civilization generally where if you're if you're a person who genuinely cares about this, you can say there's there's a moment here where we can either save humanity or not right like it, it, it's a very political situation where uh, either we do something or we don't it's it's pretty simple as compared to the absurdity of the simulation usually it's like oh there's like two opinions and that's going to just you know sort of you know create the uh, simulation of a discourse until it just continues according to the same material conditions that organized the reproduction of capital to that point. But I think this is a genuine moment of sort of in Baudrillard's term, like reversibility. Like how do you deal with this? The only way I see at politically dealing with climate change is a certain reversibility of capital is like a sort of like rundown or a, um, call it like a, well, it's just like a complete shift of where we get our energy from, you know, like fossil fuels are not able to even simulate that everything is okay anymore, which they have been doing since the 90s when they knew the climate change was happening. Um, it's just very clear right now that this is a political moment that must be used by the left, you know, and it, and it requires an entire restructuring of the economy. Right, like to to not produce the same amount of fossil fuels to have a green economy, it requires almost a change in how capital is distributed. You know, especially amongst developing countries and the developed world, but even within developed world countries, like 
who continually expends the capital is also those who contribute most to climate change. It's, it's a great political injection of the real to show that whatever system is prevailing is not correct, you know, is not the be-all, end-all, end of history that even Fukuyama prescribes, and maybe even Baudrillard, you know, to say that there's an inevitability here. I mean, I think dealing with climate change isn't going to change our conditions of, you know, technology, our use of technology, are interfacing with one another through technology, so on and so forth. But it, it can restructure the economic means of production that currently prevail in industrial countries. What about, uh, you have, a, I think, interesting application now in your grad work that extends Baudrillard's thought to kind of, un, I think, unorthodox things like finance and what else, like, was it a trans transhumanism yeah um well i think baudrillard's work on sort of the limiting of possibilities and contingency work very well with if we're talking about corporate finance which is sort of like the major player in postmodernity, is financial capital um on the one hand, we have capital abstracting itself so much so that you can't critique it, right? Like the people who work at investment banks right now will have no idea to a large extent how you price a financial derivative. While these financial derivatives represent trillions of dollars currently out there, the most amount of money possible are in these financial derivatives that nobody understands, right? Like it, it's, I see it in a certain way as capital escaping critique, escaping vulnerability by just becoming so abstract that nobody can understand it. So if you look at the way derivatives are priced, you basically have to be a PhD in math, you know? And even those, there's probably about less than half a dozen people on Wall Street who will be able to tell you what like, you know, a variant swap is. You know, or even like tell you specifically how an option is priced. You know, they might tell you something like vaguely about Greeks and, you know, oh, there's like volatility, there's a delta, whatever, whatever, whatever. They don't actually understand the ramifications of having trillions of dollars, more than the entire economy, hedged according to derivatives. So on the one hand, you have this escape of capital into abstraction to sort of protect itself, right? And then on the other hand, you have something that Baudrillard was very interested in, which is the, um, the possibility of actually changing anything. You know, we'll just say the limits of possibility. So within the financial framework, finance through derivatives, through high finance, is trying to basically determine what the future will be. It's called risk hedging most of the time. They want to be able to adapt themselves to sort of like take chance out of the situation completely. Um, and the ramifications of that are that the political possibilities significantly reduce themselves, right? Like if capital is sort of planning for the next 50 years within modes of trillions of dollars, 
it's basically planning for our entire political futures for the next 50 years. You know, it's basically hedging itself as the hegemonic view of how social relations, of how capital is going to interact for the next 50 years, you know? So if, if there's sort of um, this top-down economic planning through risk hedging, then we can basically expect the same economic future as they predict for the foreseeable future. So there's sort of like a political message here of like, well, one, is risk hedging helpful? Like, is it, is it something that, like, we actually want, you know, to just sort of, like, hedge this entire economic model for the next 75 years? Which, obviously, I think no, but, you know, that's a political argument. But there's a, there's a second thing here where is it possible? And I think both I and Bargiard would say it's not. Like, there's always going to be chance, you know? You can't get rid of chance as much as the financial system right now would love to get rid of chance, would love to like write a derivative for, you know, the economic future of the next hundred years. The reality is this thing is just as volatile as it's ever been. You know, this thing is just as likely to collapse as it is to continue into the future and giving it the technology to survive is not necessarily going to guarantee its survival, you know? And what we saw in 2008 and what I write about in my graduate work is sort of the collapse of this exact financial model. They call it like the post-Heston derivative modeling. They basically thought that volatility being like, say, let's call that chance, you know, volatility as like what could go wrong. Call it the chance of like something going wrong. They thought that that was literally static. They thought that there was one number, like 8%, let's say, for like what the volatility would be. And what even derivative pricing mathematicians found out is that there's a volatility beneath volatility, which there always will be. There's a volatility in sort of like the calculus idea of like derivatives. There's always going to be more and more volatility. There's no such thing as being able to hedge the entire future as much as finance would like to do it. But it's important to understand that finance is trying to do this. It's trying to hedge as far down as it can the volatility of the future. You know? So, I mean, I, I don't think the financiers are that smart. I really don't think that they're smart enough to hedge the future. I think there'll probably be another financial crisis that proves them wrong yet again. But the question is, like, what will we do in that political moment? You know, if this thing collapses... Or if we understand that this thing is never going to succeed as like the be all end all political economic future that everybody says we're going to have, how do we act in that moment to say we need to change things? You know, like what's the argument that we're going to put forth in the postmodern world for, you know, a change of any sort? But I guess as Marxists, we say like a change in the direction of non-exploitation of of actual you know chance of like actually starting something new i think that's the challenge um going forward and i think baudrillard really didn't predict the political positivity of the future you know he predicted political pessimism but there are opportunities for optimism 
it's just like how do we actually use them to our advantage i i don't know if i know but i know that whatever this model is is not going to succeed so i just know that we need to plan for the future i think that in a sense like this is almost an accelerationist sort of viewpoint in that but more descriptive of like the the velocity of capital has been sped up so fast that the you can see just the institutions that are predicated on a on information flows that are not at the speed of light like the liberal state like the bourgeois democracies are not capable of withstanding the velocity of capital at this at this juncture and as the logic of capital or as the speed of capital really like continues to um accelerate in an exponential sort of fashion i think it's going to by necessity like require new forms of of uh, social arrangement and the true like threat again is just going back to climate change like how much time yeah. do we have to live like any kind of you know pr- propagate any time of social relations that are going to be viable that aren't terrible you know just i guess sort of like subsistence level living for the future of of the human race like that i think is how and escaping that um horizon is is the really difficult challenge like do we have enough time for capital to sort of almost eat itself to death (laughs) before we can kind of like kick its carcass over or is it more like capital is just gonna rot and we're gonna like the maggots are you know what i mean like that carcass is just gonna start to sort of devolve and there may be some parts of the body that can survive an extended amount of time but you know essentially there's as we've reached an end point in terms of his like in in history in a more broad sense or more real sense yeah i think that's a great point I think that's a great point because I, I think in a certain sense Baudrillard fits in with a sort of accelerationist philosophy. Um, I think you're right. I, like, I, I think what I learned from Baudrillard is sort of an accelerationist political praxis in that like, I think this thing's going to have to run its own course. Like, It's so strong and it's such a major system of organizing the future that until we can break that particular organization of the future as sort of like perfectly risked hedge, um, perfectly sort of like predicted by financial capital, um, there's very little political possibility. And I think the first real challenge, like you said, is um, the ecological disaster on the horizon, right? Like capital has no answer to that. You know, like today you can see though capital trying to answer that with these like kind of half-assed responses of like, oh, maybe we can tax like carbon emissions, you know, like maybe we can slightly limit carbon emissions so that this doesn't happen. But we all know that we're beyond the horizon of reversibility when it comes to climate change. Like this stuff is pretty much going to happen. It's it's just a point of whether like what's the, like how bad how bad are the effects going to be more so than a question of, is this going to happen? Like it's already we're witnessing it happen. And the question is at one point, do we, you know, is, do we reach sort of that threshold where there's a, that irreversibility threshold maybe, but I think maybe 
for me, what Baudrillard, and again, just kind of like broadly speaking, overall, his work speaks to me in the sense of like illustrating how capital has really embedded itself within the symbolic. So like it's so embedded into that logic and yeah. into the symbol, the symbolic world. Like how do you how do you kill it? Like there's almost a reification of capital in in this sort of almost idealistic sense of you know what I mean as it's sort of being like the the mill like the soup of reality is now infused with like the simulation is entirely fused with this yeah. essence of capitalism and breaking through yeah, that with the reality yeah. generally yeah absolutely I think that's so true uh, I think that's a great political point too because. Um, when we talk about like accelerationism and sort of like a collapse, just like sort of extending the contradictions of capitalism until it collapses, I think there's a lack on the accelerationist side of the left uh, about like what the political possibilities are beyond that, you know, which I think your point is very valid. Like, I think Baudrillard's sort of genius was to say these are all inevitable, like these are beyond politics like the changes to humanity that occur through technology through anything that, that sort of changes how we interact with one another yeah so how are we going to structure a future that's better beyond this sort of like incredibly pessimistic future we have in front of us which is sort of just like death driving into ecological collapse what is the po political possibilities? And you can't just say, like, oh, we'll return to, like, an anarcho-primitivist world, you know? We'll return to a world before all of this happened. That's the real impossibility here, which I think Baudrillard sees very clearly. It's like, how do we develop a political praxis that merges the inevitabilities that postmodernity has brought upon us, but gives us the possibility i think right now our only political possibility if we're talking politics is survival <laughs> yeah you know right. i agree but you know <laughs> like beyond ecological collapse and sort of like mass surveillance capitalism it's really just sort of like a survival tactic yeah. at this point so i won't i won't say <laughs> too much but a leftist politics will say a leftist politics beyond what we currently have that actually understands the inevitability of technological interaction, sort of um, that what technology has given us in terms of standard of living. Like there's, there's a lot of things to consider for leftists in what the postmodern trajectory has been and what Baudrillard predicts the postmodern trajectory to be that I think there needs to be sort of a rejection of um, sort of anachronistic Marxist politics yeah. of sort of a return to prior, you know, modes of production, so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, because even largely it, in the sense like those, <laughs> those prior modes of re or uh, revolutionary thought or what have you, like there's a certain simulated aspect to them as well. Like not in the sense necessary, I'm like, I'm not even calling out the validity of, let's say a Marxist um schemata or whatever you know what I mean a schema towards revolution yeah. or social change but in a sense like our understanding of what that means is infused with the same sort of uh, relationship between like the symbolic and linguistics and sort of that 
like there's a certain amount of indeterminacy in even our understanding of what those prior um, attempts at creating a revolutionary rupture within capital, what they are and how they operate. And I'm from even just like a base understanding, like we're looking back, like we're not within that material set of circumstances. So in a sense, like this world that we are operating in this simulated situation also influences how we view those movements and how we try to incorporate them into something new and potentially positive or some type of revolutionary rupture. Although like we both said, I think we're both kind of uh, not the most sanguine (laughs) opinions on that matter. (laughs) Yeah. But I think that's a fantastic point. And I think that is sort of the lesson Bojar can provide to like current leftist politics, you know, like what you were just saying, like what, uh, there's there's a difference between sort of the salvation politics of like we can change everything and the politics that understands that we've passed a point where you can't just reverse the tendencies of technology you can't just reverse the tendencies of the socialists like you have to incorporate them in your leftist politics and and maybe like it, it may be hard to get over the fact that we can never return to like a pre-exploitative like you know, Marxist model of 1850 industrial society, like, you know, it sucks. I, I'll be the first to agree that I, I wish we could have escaped exploitation without it sort Fantasizing. of like jumping yeah, into yeah, hyperdrive. Exactly. And, yeah. like <laughs> exactly. and yeah. now we're just spiraling in this ever but, and ever, like, it's almost like, I don't know if you've ever seen, it's like when two stars or like a, a black hole um, or a star begins to orbit a black hole and it's like, starts to whirl around like faster and faster and faster until it hits that singularity. And that's why you'll often see like the accretion discs are like glowing red because the speed at which they're approaching the event horizon is like at the approaching the speed of light. And it's almost like a good metaphor for, I think what I'm seeing where I'm seeing capital go. There is sort of the singularity that you're talking about. And I, I completely agree with you. Like, what I've seen in Capital is that I think Capital's wet dream, sort of, is to operate without any human subjects whatsoever. Like, clearly that's the goal of Capital, right? It's sort of like robots making inanimate objects for other robotic consumers, right? Like, there's literally this sort of, like, end goal of capitalism that if you look in the next, like, 200 years, 300 years, it just sort of seems like robots trading with other robots, like, it seems like capitalism wants to escape the human exploitation part completely through technology. And I, I sort of see this as, like, there's there's sort of a defense of humanism here that it, politically you can enact, right? Like, there's something about humanity that's specifically worthwhile that capital completely supersedes, you know? And it's in a sort of path of, like, what's the most efficient system of production it is sort of like robots producing for other robots you know what else do you have any more uh what else you got on do you want to talk about transhumanism at all or any other kind of last points that we haven't gone over in terms of baudrillard's work yeah well you know transhumanism is interesting i think the best transhumanist who's sort of in the baudrillardian tradition is like donna haraway um, but in, in her work, and I think if Baudrillard would agree, is that we're sort of already cyborgs, you know, because of our 
mechanism of social interaction are sort of like technological mediation between each other and the technological mediation between us and ourselves is pretty much technological completely right it's like a cyborg interaction you know and how we view ourselves I, I like what you're saying earlier just like with the whole idea of twitter and like the whole idea of social media is like you're creating these personas that are very much like separate from yourself yet they are yourself right like um there's sort of a cyborg nature yeah. to technologically using technology to extend past what was possible for the self oh yeah um, true. in all yeah. of history and and just like if you are trying to be a person, you still have to like FaceTime right. somebody. You know, what I mean, you still have to interact on this technological basis that is inherently cyborg, right? So Don Haraway sort of rejects salvationist politics into this like complete politics of experience, knowing that we are completely, you know, like seeped in the technology of what we're right. currently going through. Um, there needs to be sort of an adaptation of technology, not just as like a sort of like political rejection of technology as sort of like a force of capitalism, but technology as sort of like something that's changed, you know, for better or for worse, probably for worse, how we engage with one another. There needs to be a politics of sort of like technology. This is sort of like an post-post-Marxism so to speak, you know, like, like, I think Marxist politics can survive, it just has to adapt, like, Marxist politics can't survive in the Marxist humanism of being like, oh, work is inherently part of your humanity, oh, you know, there's something being fought here for you, humanity. Humanity in the Baudrillardian sense has pretty much passed onto the horizon, we're, we're almost working completely within inhumanity and this sort of cyborg nature that what was considered human for the past 20 centuries is no longer valid, right? Like, we've changed so quickly within the past 30 to 50 years that there needs to be a complete change on a material level what the politics of today are. I mean, I think even in the last 20 years... <laughs> It's that acceleration has like, it's taken like a hockey, what do they call it? Hockey stick in terms of a distribution. Because I think there's even some probably like we're what, maybe like 10 years apart in terms of our like age, age wise. But I think there's probably a distinction if you were already, like if the internet was already a thing whenever you were first a child, I think that's a vastly different experience from the world where like there were still like there were remnants of the analog prior to like going online. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like um, we're oddly kind of, I think we're in the same generation and that I didn't grow up with the internet. Um, the internet kind of came to me in end of middle okay, school, gotcha. high school, and I could develop myself in the internet world then, but I have an experience okay, of pre-internet, yes. which is rare <laughs> amongst the younger generations these days. Um, but I think there is something to say about like Zoomer politics. You know, Baudrillard is kind of the perfect political philosopher for Zoomer politics. You know, this sort of like accelerationist, like technology is part of their very existence. They're part of like coming to subjectivity generally. Um, 
is just sort of what Zoomer culture is a part of. And I, I sort of look to Zoomers in a certain way, even though they're like not that much younger than me, but they are like, you know, younger than me in a very important technological way that they grew up completely with, you know, screens and technology, which I didn't, you know, get the opportunity to grow up with. They have a certain understanding that is going to pretty much inherently exclude anachronistic salvationist Marxist politics. So you have to see them as like, I think the vanguard party of the future in a certain way, and that they're going to be technology laden, you know? They're going to be seeped in a world that capital has created for them um, in a way that they're not going to be able to even sort of recognize salvationist politics anymore. You know, we're kind of heading into the era of complete, you have to adapt or you have to die, you know, when it comes to Marxist politics. There's really no room anymore for uh, a return to any sort of prior economic system without collapsing the current one. I think even extending this to the relationship between younger people that have had like their entire lives documented on social media, whether it be Facebook, Instagram, like Snapchat, etc. Like, can you imagine the like that experience? Like you're before you were even capable of, you know, making decisions and so forth, like your family creating like a Facebook page for you or something like that. Or Instagram and then like being like being seven or eight, nine, ten, like that age and having that aspect of your life like documented digitally is gotta be yeah. like the birth of subjectivity is now the birth of commodification in a lot of ways right like it used to be in Lokanian sense that you would see yourself in the mirror and you would sort of like recognize yourself as sort of subject and object in a certain way and you would realize that you're sort of this ideal eye that you see yourself in the mirror right now the mirror is literally Instagram right like the mirror is the commodification of the ideal eye in the Lacanian sense. And so it's like what I, I'm very interested to see what these kinds of people become like as humans, you know, and I still believe in a certain amount of humanity that's in their subjectivity, that they're, they're seeing themselves sort of projected as like a series of likes and dislikes and shares on social media before they even understand who they are as yeah, a person. Yeah, exactly. And being right, like, like that market logic of all of that as well. And yeah. having an exposure to the brutality of the market itself as... I mean, I think you see the this kind of manifesting itself in ways where like, you know, I think I've heard stories where, you know, people... Like if someone... Like everyone in the class has to like someone's photograph, for example... Because when it, yeah. because otherwise it's like this kind of like market logic applies itself in within the social realm as well. So like it's a more focused and it's visible like what was obscured a little bit by social relations um, is now like at the forefront within the digital age because it's right out there being broadcast. Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of scary. I'm hopeful because I didn't have to go through it as <laughs> right, a kid. God that people will kind of reject it yeah, <laughs> as like, you know, inherently inhuman being like commodified immediately yeah. out the gate here. But, you know, it's like something we can't like reject, like especially you and me as people who like grew up before that like inherent commodification of subjectivity, like what, 
what's the politics of people who are immediately commodified? It's like, it's hard to think like there's a huge, huge wall right now between like, I mean, I'm on the youngest end of it, but sort of like the millennial and the zoomers, you know, the sort of like, well, did you know what it was like to live before you had to be subjected to whether people like yeah, you or right. not, you know? this like being for others that exists now in the commodity form um, is like, I mean, it seems super insidious to me, but I, I, what I see in zoomers is a certain revolutionary fervor to use it for, you know, politically salient purposes, you know, like I think they, they, they have a certain like Marxist tint to them, which I'm pretty surprised by. Like, the rejection of the commodification of themselves, the rejection of the commodification of everything, which kind of makes sense if you grew up in a world where everything's commodified, that the sub- subversive culture of that time would be to, like, not commodify yourself. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of people who work within the system of objects we're currently in to sort of, like, pitch a revolutionary... Um, message that kind of gets like a lot of you know like positive likes like it gets like a lot of high commodifiable value to like be like i'm against capitalism which i think is like inherently probably the future is like sort of like using capitalism to undermine itself is pretty much the only way forward there's no like world outside of politics there's no more anonymity there's no more like you don't join social media there's no like you don't commodify yourself it's all within the framework of commodification and i think zoomers are probably the best at that right now um which i'm pretty happy with but um it is scary to be somebody who um had dreams of a salvationist future who had dreams of like you know actual equality in our time um that seems to be kind of in the back mirror of what history is heading towards. And I think Baudrillard was keen in just expressing how quickly it's moving and how quickly you have to adapt to it and not sort of like find yourself on the outside, the anachronistic side of history, thinking that you can still, you know, try and break down Marxist exploitation of the laborer and the capital owner it's it's way beyond that capital has evolved way beyond our conception of it so we'll see we'll see in the future what um political methods we have but um i'm strangely optimistic when it comes to the zoomers i'm strangely optimistic to where baudrillard can help us go when it comes to revolutionary politics i think extending that to just briefly to I think the constitution of the self and again that kind of idea that I was describing earlier where it's like you have the subject is split between like I have this self is uh, participating on Instagram and this self is on Twitter and this self is on Facebook and this self is on Snapchat and then there's like the actual IRL me that is yet another like part of this creature whatever this entity (laughs) you know what I mean and like your your subjectivity (laughs) you know kind of like the enlightenment idea of that of the subject really fracturing into a, a thousand different places and ways and like splitting i think that's an interesting phenomenon in itself 
in terms of really how we view ourselves like that metaphysics, metaphysically like the idea of the self, right, as that kind of enlightenment vision of the unified self that is always consistent and is always like one, like singularity almost, right? Versus like this more now the self is sort of, I mean, maybe the idea of the self is limiting in in a way, defining and like understanding the self as this unity rather than this sort of yeah. more decentralized, I think deconstructive, like Derridian sort of approach to the the self. Yeah, it's odd, like in grad school too, we're like still trying to deconstruct the liberal self. You know what I mean? Like we're pretty far behind where we could be politically because you know like the most radical you can be is to be like oh like everything subverts the liberal notion of self-sovereignty in the 21st century right like there's there's no way that these abstract notions of liberalism are going to hold up right like everybody's challenging that from ecological disaster you know like the ecological uh sort of connection of a human to their ecological footprint to like you know the notions all the way dating back to Hume of like subjectivity not being so consistent you know um we're still working on deconstructing that you know and it's like that's what we have to do whatever like that's the grad work that we're doing like that's the philosophical work that we're doing but that we're we're not at the vanguard of sort of like leftist politics where I I think like what I was explaining with the Zoomers is they like inherently understand that, you know, they have like three different social media accounts that represent like three different versions of themselves. They can understand that there's no consistent version of themselves, you know, like on a visceral level. So they sort of have the political, um, you know, torch right now when it comes to coming up with something that's not limited. Um, but I, I, I've been a slightly, you know, disappointed in how far behind sort of like the theoretical circles are in breaking down where we are right now. We're still in like the 18th century to a certain extent when it comes to deconstructing yeah. liberalism, you know, but, you know, it's, it's just taking advantage of sort of like the messianic moments of time as Walter yeah. Benny would say, like, when can we actually make a difference? You know, there's very few times. Well, any uh, any other topics you want to delve in? I think we are about at, about ninety minutes in. Uh, I'm, I'm good. good. About the I'll just leave uh, the last <laughs> anecdote. The last time Baudrillard ever spoke, um, he spoke in New York, um, and it was actually profiled by the New Yorker and. Somebody asked him finally, like, um, who who are you? You know, Jean Baudrillard, like, you write a lot, but who who are you as a person? And he answers, uh, I am the simulation of Jean Baudrillard, <laughs> which I, I think is very uh, useful in understanding yourself. Um, and, yeah, exactly. Very on brand for Jean Baudrillard and very interesting to understand yourself going forward as you, you are indeed the simulation of yourself. So, yeah. Uh, you know, love Baudrillard, love the guy. I think he's the foremost political philosopher and social theorist of our time, even though he's dead. Um, but uh, hope you, hope you all read him. Yeah, I think you fucking you did a really, really good job of explaining a lot of his concepts. Uh, you were a damn good 
guest to have on the pod, man. Oh, thank you so much. Poster <laughs> right here, all on my Twitter. <laughs> but uh, Chris, any like any other <laughs> thoughts or anything you want to share? Maybe plug or you know any projects or anything like that that you want to share? Feel free to uh, reference that now before we sign off. Uh, I, I've got nothing going on, but uh, if you see me in the future in academia, definitely read my shit. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, once again, thanks to uh, Chris Raguse for joining me on the podcast. This is Podcast Care of Cooper Cherry signing off. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is podcast.